Jill. And welcome back to Folksy. Today we have gathered around our campfire, which seems strangely to be only lit by the ambient light source. It's very spooky and appropriate because we have Alexandra Amick here today to talk about uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch. Uh, Alexandra, you prefer Alex, yes? Yes. Wonderful. Well, Alex is an incredible film editor whose works include such dope pieces that I'm sure you've seen, such as a Muppet Haunted Mansion, and one of my favorite pioneer folk horror films. It's very close to my heart, The Wind. Uh, So Alex, when the average person thinks of movies, they think of like actor, director, writer, maybe composer or producer. What drew you to post-production and film editing? Great question. Um, (laughs) I think it's, I I describe the editing position is like one of the most important positions that no one will ever understand. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, the way that I see a story is very visual and I feel it very rhythmically, I think. And I think that that is kind of what editing is. And for your audience who might not be familiar with it, it's basically, you know, a a scene is shot from multiple angles and it is the editor's job to decide what angle to show in a scene and when in a scene and why in that scene. And we craft the tone, the pacing, uh, a joke can, a really great joke can be ruined in editing. Um, A really great scare can be made in editing. And um, I think that, it's just this organized chaos and it's just problem solving. And I think that it combines kind of the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain all in one. And uh, I think that uh, really sums it up. That is the most articulate description of editing that I have ever heard. And I, apart from the fact that I know a lot of editors, I also went to like a minor league film school and that's still by far, Oh, that is such an rhythmically, that mm-hmm. is such an interesting way of of looking at the art form and again and applying it visually. That is so cool. Oh man! Well, you specifically had ta- had asked about the the witch, or as I'm gonna from time to time call it, the Vivich, because sometimes yes. that's how I <laughs> it. Um, uh, and then you always have to shoot up the two peace signs, the Vivich. Um, <laughs> but before we begin uh, talking about this film, would you be so kind as to give an offering to my campfire? I shall. Excellent. Everybody's been trying to to give food. We've gotten borscht in the past, and we've gotten Raising Cane's chicken, <laughs> which, you know, what wonderful things to, to sacrifice to the podcast gods. But for you, I actually have a question. Who is your favorite witch from a movie? I'm going to actually sacrifice my, like, my first witch who was like kind of my least favorite witch, which is in, you know, the witch, the evil queen from Snow White. Oh, and um, <laughs> she, she haunted my baby nightmares. She lived under my bed. She was in my closet and uh, I still have a little 
will shudder any time that I see her. So she is the ultimate witch. Yes, the crown version, yes. Not not super mommy. Right. Uh, Yes. (laughs) We all wish to be super mommy. (laughs) We all purple looks great on everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, well, that's that's so cool. And actually, I love that it's got the dichotomy in there. Because uh, you know, as we as we begin this this journey to talk about probably one of the pinnacle witches of cinema now, um, for those of you who have not seen The Witch, after being banished from a New England Puritan settlement over a religious dispute, William moves his wife Catherine and children Thomason, Caleb, Mercy, and Jonas to the edge of the woods. They begin to devolve under the weight of their own religious values when an evil presence begins to seduce them. The film stars Anna Taylor-Joy in her film debut, which makes sense because when you look at her, she is a baby in this movie. (laughs) The baby is. As well as Ralph Innocent, Kate Dickey, and Harvey Scrimshaw in like a surprisingly great kid performance. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The film was released in 2015, I believe, as as well mm-hmm. um so you working in film how often do you work with you know like which pieces uh i've actually i've never worked on something with a witch i don't think um yeah i mean like i feel like um in the witch the vivich especially Love that. the, <laughs> the <laughs> like witch is an actual witch but it's also their paranoia and i've definitely worked with that um oh for sure you have <laughs> yeah um so you know the presence of it, the idea of is there something out there maybe maybe not but the important thing is is that uh, to the story is that someone believes it and someone doesn't i you've hit the nail on the head because one one of my like small passions has always been Elizabethan and Jacobian theater. And actually when Eggers was sitting down and looking, he, I guess, was a production designer before he became mm-hmm. a director and a writer, which is another dope Hollywood job for anybody looking out there who's like, I like to see how things look aesthetically and they need to be correct. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the Jacobian era, for those who might not be as familiar, is what succeeded the Elizabethan era. Basically, when Queen Elizabeth I died, King James of Scotland inherited the crown from England or from the crown of England from Elizabeth, who had spent the bulk of her reign amassing this crazy huge bank and navy at England's disposal. Uh, his mother was the very famous Mary Queen of Scots. There's been a lot of movies about those two recently. Uh, but I mentioned this because the Jacobian era is often associated with like the fruits of Elizabeth's bank, you know, architecture, scientific advancement, literature, and you know, tons of other stuff advanced under James's rule. But he was kind of the the last, not last, everybody kind of believes in some crazy stuff the minute they get a crown on their head. But he had, this was also a time of a fuck ton of religious extremism due to frequent panics over religious deviance. Um, that was a continuing conflict from Roman Catholics versus Protestants in the Church of England that only became more violent after Elizabeth had taken the throne. And James was actually the king who was meant to be assassinated in the famous gunpowder plot of 1605. Uh, But very famously, much like his great-great-grandpappy, grandpappy uh, uncle, Henry VIII, (laughs) who very famously accused a wife he didn't like of potentially being a witch, James was also convinced that witches were plotting against his reign. 
Um, in fact, during his reign, there was believed to be something along the lines of over 200 witch trials in England and over 400 in Scotland. Uh, Scotland in particular, like they they were having none of it. Um, but this this obsession was well documented. For those who are familiar with Shakespeare's Scottish play, the the Macbeth, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're a knock. Uh, it was actually written as a flattery piece for James, playing on his infatuation with witchcraft and regicide. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> what a guy who can take a joke. Um, it also, uh, hilariously, the play is considered, of course, to be cursed amongst theatrical actors because of its involvement with summonings and witchcraft, which was still very present at the time. And Macbeth came in the wake of probably one of the most famous, I would argue, folkloric Christian plays of all time, Christopher Marlowe's infamous Dr. Faustus, which brought the biblical devil to a blockbuster stage space uh, for the first time. It was really something unheard of in that space. Um, So all of these influences involving devil's bargains involving, you know, just this fear of of religion and neighbor and kind of, you know, when things did not seem right, you could kind of just turn and accuse somebody of either being a traitor or a witch. Uh, You know, very specifically, the monarchy of these eras shaped the way that the narratives around them and like this obsession with black magic and witch hunting uh, really seeped into both the European telling and then eventually the North American folk horror through these early colony settlements. These images would replace all of the pagan and druidic notions of Western Europe. So it's the image that traveled across the ocean uh, and evolved into kind of what we see as that stereotypical witch of today, that crone with the pointed hat and the broom and the cauldron. You know, it all really boiled down from, you know, because no witches look like Anne Boleyn. <laughs> kind of thing and so this film you know really hones in on creating this kind of pinnacle witch of what we expect from this jacobian era and what would become this huge staple uh in the way that we tell stories about witches as a result of that um and, you know, to a point where it even was incorporated into the the English unholy trinity, uh, Mark Gatiss, or I guess Mark Gatiss didn't come up with the unholy trinity. I guess that was Adam Scoville. We will talk about that at a different point in time. But uh, <laughs> his classic film, the or not Scoville's classic film, in the classic film, Witchfinder General with Vincent Price, you know, that's considered one of the these pinnacle witches that would later go into influencing this film. So I've talked enough about witches, my God, because they there's just more to how scary the notion of, of her is in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film was edited by Louise Ford, who has since become like Edgar's go-to gal when it comes time for editing. Mm-hmm. I think like his major catalog and some of his minor ones too. Um, is there a reason that certain directors like to stick with the same editor on their catalog as it expands in your experience? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, It's a very um, personal and intimate relationship, um, an editor and a director. I think if you do it right anyway. um, That's lovely. Tell me more. Yeah. um, I mean, basically, you know, after the film is shot, um, normally like an editor will work on it while it's being shot to be like, hey, you missed this shot or hey, you know, I think your performance here isn't as good as you think it is. You have a little set blindness. You're getting a little excited. (laughs) And uh, that's what I call it. I call it set blindness. Everybody has like adrenaline. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's a really cool term. I love that. Yeah. And they send it off and they're like, oh my God, take five is amazing. And then I watch take five and I'm like, they did not say what was in the script. (gasps) You know, like stuff like that where it's like, okay, I mean, if you don't care, if they say their lines, then it's a great take. If if you do, then you might want to go with take four or reshoot it. Um, But anyway, so that's going on like while, while they're on set shooting and then afterwards an editor has some time with the footage themselves to build out what's called an assembly. And it's a rough pass of pretty much presenting the director with like, here's your movie. Here's what you shot. Here's some swings. Here's some directions we can go in. Here's my thoughts on where we need to take it. Um, And then depending on how a director likes to work, um, from then on out, you're pretty much every single day, all day, sitting in a room alone with the editor. And you're facing um, some big challenges um, every single day. And it's, you know, art is extremely personal. And when you're in the edit bay, you can't hide any failures. And they have, a director has to confront any mistakes that they made or things that they didn't think it was a mistake. And then suddenly when it comes to the editing, you know what? I didn't get the angle that would have made this scarier or whatever it is. So it's a very um, trusting relationship because they kind of are bearing their soul every single day. And then it's a very, you know, frustrating relationship because it should be, you know, I should be their number one fan and get to know exactly what they want out of this movie And then also their number one, like, challenger to be like, okay, this is what you wanted out of this movie. I don't think this scene is doing what you think it's doing right now. Tell me what you want out of this. And then then there's discussions. And I would never say arguments. I mean, I I try to never argue. Uh, I don't think that's healthy for the... We all try to never argue. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) at least in that in in that setting i think there's definitely like disagreements but um ultimately it's a extremely collaborative back and forth and by the end of when i work with a director like they can sigh a certain way and i can say okay what what performance don't you like or they can sigh a different way and i can say okay so you don't like that edit why you know, they don't really have to speak anymore. We get a shorthand. I know what they like. I know what they don't like. I know when they skip breakfast and we're going to have a rough couple of <laughs> hours oh or they have lunch, you know, all these kinds of things. So once you establish that shorthand and you feel safe with uh, that person and that they really understand how you like to work and what's important to you, um, that there's a reason why you don't want to go through that all over again. You know, that's fair. That kind of, I mean, I, my fear is that this is going to sound derogatory, but it sounds like you're kind of like a therapist bartender. Oh, I say that all the time. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Alongside of, you know, doing your job. That's very, very fascinating. I would have Mm -hmm. never thought that so much personal emotionality goes into that portion of, of post-production. That's so cool. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, again, like I mentioned before, you very specifically picked this film because it was a huge influence for you when you were working on The Wind. What is mm-hmm. it about this film's editing that really drew you in with folk horror? 
You, um, you know, I, uh, so I, um, I was approached to edit the wind and I was given the script by Teresa Sutherland and it read very specifically, like even in on the page, it had a mood, it had a tone and I had not seen the witch at that time. And, um, I'd also not met the director Emma Tammy yet I and, love the script did that though. I oh, love yes. a good script really just things like that. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah, oh, it was it was cool. it was a great read. Um so I knew that I when I met with the director Emma um that I wanted to kind of understand even in like broad strokes kind of what style she was thinking and what how she read the script because, you know, everybody consumes art differently. And what I read as a slow scene, she might read as quick and cutty. Um, So I wanted to, you know, figure out, um, just get on this, not necessarily the same page, but in the same book before I started, you know, throwing things together. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. We say on this podcast all the time, fear is subjective, the same way that comedy subjective and so you want to make sure that you're telling that subject's pov (laughs) exactly so i had seen uh trailers for the witch but i had not seen it and i just just while i was um kind of researching some films that i felt might be in the tone of the way that i read the script i thought of that trailer so like okay i'll put it on and i was like enraptured by it just just absorbed completely. And I think in the editing, it's, it's so intentional and it's so slow until it, until it's not, Um, you know, we, at the very beginning um, after they're cast out of the, the plantation, it's just a shot of them leaving. You know, I think there's two shots in that sequence. There's like one, where the camera is shot between the two children's uh, shoulders looking as the gates close. And then it turns around and watches as the, their wagon just gets further and further and further and further away. And just holding and not cutting is uncomfortable. And that's what this movie is about. There's rarely any jump scares. It's just about being uncomfortable. And so, and that's all down to editing. That is all down to editing. Like you could, I mean, obviously the performances, the cinematography, the score, all of that is excellent. However, it could have been ruined in the edit. And it was not, it was heightened. And so I think it's just so intentional and only. Nope. So sorry. (laughs) Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're, you're not wrong. You know, whenever I, I pop this film on, which is not as often as I should, I realized on this rewatch (laughs) because I do very much so enjoy it. Um, I think that that so much American folk horror, there is this expectation that it's going to be slow and bleak. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. I actually, what I kind of took away from, from this particular rewatch, well, I took two things away. One is that this film is relentless. Yes. And that is due to the editing is that, you know, even if these moments are a little slower, the pacing because mm-hmm. of the editing is 
fascinating Mm -hmm. with the way that they just keep pounding into you how fucking awful this circumstance Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I took away was that it was weirdly sexual on this, like more than. Yes, it was more than I remembered. (laughs) Right? Like, yeah, it was way more than I remembered. And obviously, you know, puberty plays a huge part into, you know, just the characterization. Yes. And, you know, I really, I think from before only remembered it coming out at the end. And, you know, little bits and pieces of like that poor little boy who's going through puberty and the only thing he has to look at is his older sister. Exactly. Yeah, it's totally understandable, but so uncomfortable. And just, Uh, it's, but yes, that step is in front of every piece of pornography now when you Google it. (laughs) 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 Ah, the world that we have evolved from since puritanical days. But, Uh, but you know, it's, yeah, you're, you're not wrong with just how crazy all of this works with the editing and with the music, because Mm -hmm. everything, the lighting, like I kind of half joked about at the beginning, all the lighting seems to be ambient, which Mm -hmm. is wild. Um, and then the music, when you work on a film, do Mm -hmm. you get the music first? Do you get it during, how does that normally work with matching up? Yeah, it's, that's a really hard thing to work with um it just depends uh you know for the wind i had nothing going in and so actually and so you use temp temp tracks you pull from wherever you want and i used actually a lot of temp tracks from the witch uh and so it's actually weird to watch the movie that you pull the music from after you're really used to it in the movie that you're working on, you're like, what is this music that goes under this scene doing under this witch? And you're like, oh, wait, that's because I'm just borrowing it for a moment. Um, but um, so some fun. sometimes you don't have it. Mo- I mean, most of the time you don't have much. Um, on The Wind, we got, we, we brought on our composer, um, Ben Lovett, uh, about I would say halfway through and he started feeding us temp tracks and sounds and that I mean music is so important I mean every part of it is important but music can make or break an edit like an edit without sound can like sing and then you put the wrong music under it and you're like oh man this doesn't work or oh man this this is it so he really understood the music And the film, he came at it from a very um, story and character perspective. And he used um, period appropriate instruments and all kinds of stuff like that. But he, so we were being fed things as we were working and we were sending him rough cuts. He was sending us kind of loose themes and such that we were plopping in. And so that actually influenced the edit in some places, um, you know, oh, you know, you hear, you hear how great this string sounds long. What if we held this scare a little bit longer? You know, it just, it it gives you another set of inspiration to pull from. Um, when I worked on Muppets Haunted Mansion, I think we, wait, I don't know. What a twist and difference. Oh, I know. Oh my gosh. It's ridiculous. Like what a, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a ride yeah, spooky which is yes. something that i love for you oh yes. my god um <laughs> i don't think we had anything until the very end either i know that like we might have been fa- i mean we were given 
a few cues that were um, from the actual like haunted mansion itself. We and so we were able to like kind of plug those in, but our composer wasn't able to like really come on and give us stuff until much later. And so we were in the mix when they were dropping stuff in and we were messing with the music. And that was a really collaborative thing of like, you know, it would be funnier if there was a like a trumpet sting here. And so they'd just throw it in. They'd be right there and and doing it. And then um and then I worked on a horror film clock that came out earlier this year on Hulu and we didn't have anything until the the, uh, return to the dark uh, ones. I love the Hulu movies. I can never keep up with. Yes. There, they have a lot of horror series. This was actually, it was, uh, (laughs) um, um, what, what, what do they call bite size Halloween? They do. Hulu does uh, Halloween shorts that they kind of put into a pipeline to develop into features. And so Alexis Jack, now the direct writer, director of clock had done a short version, which is nothing like, I mean, it's like in theme wise, it is the same, but in terms of like what the story is and, and, everything else it's completely I, I recall the story the story was a woman and her biological clock is ticking and all of her friends are trying to convince her to to get pregnant i again i remember the, her yes <laughs> yes it's a essentially a woman says i don't want kids i don't have a clock it's it's never been ticking and uh her doctor says it's just broken and which is ridiculous and you know and all and uh demeaning and but she yes. <laughs> does a, a clinical trial to turn her clock back on and it does not go well that is fascinating and i'm going to have to check it out the second i am able thank you so much for a film recommendation this is our first film recommendation hey there you go hey oh what joy Oh my goodness, my goodness. Well, you know, you actually have a huge background, you know, in not only Muppets, but actually in folk horror mm-hmm. per se. Is this a genre that you've always been interested in as an editor? Or is it something that kind of came across your life and you just enjoy it now? It, How did you come across folk horror? <laughs> it is the latter. I have to admit that I'm a big, big, big scaredy cat and I don't particularly enjoy horror. <laughs> Hey girl, there ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um, so I, when I was approached to do the wind, I was asked, it was just, Hey, like we have a movie. Um, are you interested? And I said, yes. And they said, you know, yeah, it's great. Um, it's a Western horror. And if you had asked me two seconds before that, what my two least favorite genres were, <laughs> I would have said a combo, uh, you know, it would have been Western and horror. Um, So funny because they're my favorite. (laughs) Well, they're so good. They're so good. And it just took, you know, I needed an education. And I do a lot of research before and during any film that I'm working on. And that that meant that I had to watch a lot of Westerns and a lot of horrors. And I would argue that most Westerns are somewhat horrors because of the frontier. Um, you are not wrong. Yeah. I, I grew up in the Rocky Mountains. So, yes, oh, you are so this is near and dear. Oh, yeah. You should. Uh, we talk about it a little bit on Blair Witch, uh, yes. one of the other episodes where I talk about being stuck in absolute pitch black for the first time in my entire life. And it was probably one of the most, I mean, I remember it to this day. It was one of the most terrifying experiences yeah. of my life. And I have chased bears out of dumpsters. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but that's so interesting that then when you went to go s- 
to and watch The Witch, you were so enraptured by it. Is this like maybe what you would call your type of horror film? Like, would you watch more kind of along these lines? Yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, you know, working in the genre for many years now, I appreciate um, a wider breadth of 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 types of films under the the horror umbrella. But I would say uh, folk horror is definitely uh, up there. It's my my favorite. I think I, I like I like the folk aspect that is always uh, in storytelling in general, like legends and 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 such. I tend to be drawn to that. And then the just very intentional filmmaking and obviously editing in my case um, definitely leads me into that type of film as well. Well, girl, I can see what drew you into my woods. This is (laughs) so wonderful. Well, and what I also kind of love about all of this is that, you know, this film came out in 2015, which mm-hmm. predates what a lot of people consider kind of like the big revival film of folk horror, which yes. was Midsommar, um, mm-hmm. which came out in 2019. Yeah, 2019 sounds correct. Uh, anybody can feel free to to correct me later. I have crazy ADHD and my notes get messed up in my head. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, this kind of this film actually kind of created this environment of what would really be solidified with Midsommar, but what started to happen here, because she gets referenced in it all the time, which is Thomason as that like good for her kind of character uh-huh. <laughs> that kind of, you know, got the ball rolling on what would become this. You know, I think a lot of people just equate it to A24, but, you know, you've worked on a film in recent, you've worked on more than one film in more recent days that really starts to incorporate this kind of folkloric, element to it. And so, you know, coming to this in this modern setting, what are some of the things that draw you to to folk horror that you're seeing come out now? Oh, I mean, I think that I I think there's a a societal shift in I mean, on I mean, this sounds like, I mean, I don't know how controversial this really is, but I would say that a lot of America <laughs> Um, I doubt it. I doubt it's cut outable. I would say that a lot of Americans are not super proud of America right now and this disillusionment with it. And I think that when we look at like, how did we get here? We look back in our past and our past is pretty bad. And oh, it is. Fraught. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I would say not good. Um, and I think the full core, specifically of American of the American variety, is settlers facing a wilderness, facing an unknown, facing that pitch black, and things like bringing things with us but finding things already there that tell us we are not welcome. And I think that, you know, with the witch, that's the early, you know, English and um, European settling settlers. And then the wind is, you know, the manifest destiny moving out into the West. Oh, manifest destiny. You (laughs) You know, like, and, and it's just things that, that we should, and, and I think that when you watch these movies, you think we shouldn't have done this. 
You know, no. like we should no. we shouldn't <laughs> have we should have left well enough alone and not ventured there. We sh- you know, and in in the wind there's a lot of lines like this land is wrong. And it's true. It's not ours. It was never no. ours. And it was never ours. Yes. And it's it's far vaster than we could ever imagine mm-hmm. having to think that we could control. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's what folk American folklore is about. And I think that it just kind of speaks to like a subtext within the like a feeling in the culture of we're doing wrong and we've always been doing wrong. Well, I think even, you know, there's a a great line in this film that I know, like before we started recording that you had mentioned, of course, I'm trying to flip through my notes. You have it on hand. I do. I do. Let's hear it. We will conquer this wilderness. It will not consume us. I love the use of the word consume. (laughs) Um, You know, I I kind of briefly touched upon the, the unholy Trinity of, you know, the original definitions of folk horror before. And that was when, again, that was when Gatiss, you know, kind of set up this definition that really, it didn't just apply to only English films, but it it very much so, um, it made the most sense (laughs) with, with, uh, with incredibly like Western European kind of centric films. And there are versions of this kind of a little bit of everywhere, because, you know, we're talking about a witch here throughout the film, we actually also get a possession and mm-hmm. possession by, by demons and by evil has been recorded in pretty much almost every religious culture mm-hmm. at some point in time. But you know, it doesn't always come in the form of that, which actually I brought up the possession. I was going to talk about the unholy Trinity, but from a, from, because I've got you here, you're trapped <laughs> in, my, in my forest here. Um, so something like a possession, like when you're when you're normally getting that footage in, because normally it's a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. You know, we think of like The Exorcist and like physically hurting actors, which no, no, please mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. out there listening in, in podcast land. That's never never the right call. I don't care what old white men say. Um, but you know, this particular possession scene is so simple. You know, what do you normally get when you are getting kind of like these big, you know, or what do you normally see when you see these possession kind of like moments in cinema? Uh, you mean like what 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 does it look like on the filmmaker's side? Yeah. Um, you know, it just kind of depends. But I mean, um, so the raw footage that we get every day is called dailies. And um, they're really boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to um, beat around that bush. They're really, really boring. They lack tone they lack atmosphere they lack editing you know it's uh, they could be just one long take of like an actor doing it over and over again there could be you know multiple takes of them doing it a couple different ways um but you know i mean a film a final film is is colored it has music it it is sound designed um, and I could get a shot of a ghost with someone's cell phone going off in the background, you know, like <laughs> it's not great. It doesn't happen that often, but could happen. And so it's, um, you know, it just kind of depends on the the style of the movie, what kind of footage you're going to receive. Um, you know, when it came to the wind, 
it was, um, we have a couple of, we don't have a possession scene, but we definitely have a couple of ghostly moments. Well, I guess you could argue that there is some possession in the film if you're really paying attention. But, um, I but, would argue that there's a little bit of possession. Yeah, a little. But again, in that way that just, you know, unless there is somebody, unless it's very obvious, you know, mm-hmm. and again, usually it's very Judeo-Christian, <laughs> um, you know, of this notion of, of this presence passing into, and that's what it is, it's a presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that oftentimes we put names like demon or creature mm-hmm. Or you know anything that we possibly can to to create a visual in our mind of something taking over another. But but the wind does this very good job, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of keeping you on your toes, which is fun. Yes. Oh yeah. I mean that could be a whole other podcast episode about that movie in particular. Um, but yeah, well, I mean I, that's I hope that we can convince you to, oh. to meander back for, for something like that as well. Woo-hoo. Yes, the campfire beckons. Yes. <laughs> it's very warm here. Again, a very obvious light. <laughs> There's something comforting about that, which is always very nice. Uh, again, I've, I I love a good campfire. And again, because it brings everybody together. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you definitely see in just the way that they've kind of shot a lot of this. This this film, I love how you've really taken to the editing side of this, because I think a lot of times there's a bit of mystique for people, especially, you know, kids who want to be actors who are out there and, you know, they want to be in, in movies. But really the first big kind of thing that you can do is theater. Mm-hmm. And so much of this film is staged like a theatrical play. Mm-hmm. Yeah way that it's kind of bunched and the way that it's you know it's angles that really mm-hmm. throw you out of that proscenium space in such a lovely lovely way um and and yeah it's that is that kind of difference from going to some i love hearing that there's like cell phones going on and stuff in the background oh, i think yeah. that there's this mystique that everybody thinks that you know you run it like it's a theatrical scene and then it's you know and then it's done no absolutely not there's yeah i mean you know <laughs> uh hopefully Hopefully everything's, you know, buttoned up tight because actors work very, very, very hard to do what they need to do. And it's a very, very vulnerable position that they put themselves in, not only on set because, you know, they're doing something extreme, you know, they have to, they have to put themselves out there and say, yes, this is totally believable of what uh, this character would do when they are running for their life in front of, you know, 150 strangers, essentially just staring at them, chewing gum and eating, you know, crafty, uh, you know, gummy fruits. Um, (laughs) And then, uh, and then they know that in the editorial process, me or some other little edit gremlin is going to be staring at them a million times and like maybe judging them and being like, Oh, I can't believe they can't remember their line. I don't judge them. I don't. Um, uh, (laughs) And then their face is going to be, you know, blown up, you know, the size of a building in front of hopefully, you know, millions of people. Um, So, you know, hopefully that, uh, a very different type of stamina and experience yes they always say with theater that it's you know you're doing eight shows a week so you've got to be able to maintain for eight shows a week Mm -hmm. because you're always getting different people going in and seeing it when you go to shoot for film you might only get to do it like top five times unless you are unless it's really you know you're having a bad day (laughs) (laughs) yeah i did i mean that's just completely up to there's so many factors that go into like how many but yeah i mean it's a completely different thing and you might do the same line 20 times in a row in a row 
A hundred percent. I actually, in my research of this film, I did not realize that I, I came across like this whole article that was very specifically about how Ralph Innocent hated the goat on set. Mm-hmm. Like from moment one, like locked eyes and was like, this guy's a piece of shit. I don't want to deal with this goat. <laughs> but Eggers was so, I guess, insistent that they not use CGI, which like good for him. Yes. I can't imagine what CGI would have been in, in this film. Um, and so I guess they built like a puppet because he got kicked really hard in the chest at one point and yes. spent like five weeks of shooting just like in terrible amounts of pain. Yes. You know, it, it's really, really wild what, you know, and I also think of, you know, Kate Dickey sitting there with a raven just pecking at her tit. Yeah. Oof. How many takes? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's rough scene, man. Oh, oh man, it really is. But Kate, Kate Dickey is so good in just mm-hmm. anything. I love her in Prometheus, which is one of my weird, dumb favorite sci-fi movies. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually quite good. I will stand by that. Um, it's my my weird. That's where my grave lives up at top. It's what it says on my grave. <laughs> Prometheus was good. Um, uh, I'm gonna get a ton of hate on the internet for that. It's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so so. You know, kind of with all of this going you know, into into what makes a movie, mm-hmm. what would you say is your favorite scene in this film? Oh, wow. Favorite, favorite scene in the film. Oh, you know, I feel like it's it okay. changes. The very first time I watched it, mm-hmm. it was the scene where um, the father takes the son, William, I think his name is, um, into the woods to hunt. And they're just walking and... The kid's got that giant gun. Yeah, he's got a (laughs) giant gun. And they're just... Like, William is just reciting, essentially, like, scripture. And they're they're kind of, like, talking godly ways back and forth. And for whatever reason, it's so unsettling. Like it's so unsettling, and they're you know I it's they're just walking. Nothing bad has happened. Nothing really bad, you know. Like I mean, obviously the setup is the baby is already gone, so yeah. uh, unsettling things have happened in the movie already. But like I don't think leading into it, it's particularly like oh my god, we've just come off of a big scare, so we're coming down from that. Even they're just walking and talking, and I don't know the way that the way it lingers on William staring at his dad while his dad is speaking. Oh, his dad is William. The son of Caleb. Oh yes. Caleb. That's right. I'm so sorry. No, I know. Don't be sorry. I was right there with you because it's only two people in the scene. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So Caleb is watching William and it is just so intense and he, and the performance is so good and he just, it's this little boy just wanting to do what his dad says is right and what God says is right. And ultimately, like, that's kind of what is happens to Caleb is he does, he thinks he does something so sinful, so unforgivable that he's, you know, he's ate, eaten the poison apple of, you know, sex or something yeah. like it. And yeah. when he, like, is in his possession in the attic is crying out um but i think that like it all comes back to that scene and that that 
that like intonement of the godly way. And so it's, it's not like a big flashy scene, but for whatever reason, when I was watching it, that's when I was, I said to myself, like, I love this movie. Amazing. No, I, I love that. And I love that for you. Wonderful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, there, there's this notion that I, when I was watching it this time around, it's just kind of what popped into my head because it did kind of remind me of, of the environment that I grew up in, which is this notion of the only way that anybody can survive this environment is by, you must send a lift for mm-hmm. lack of a better way to put it. Okay with doing things that morally might not be super great or you know again when it comes time for the father's ultimate downfall pride yes uh you know wrath you know that comes with grief mm-hmm. um you know and or that comes with the frustration of living under a system where rules apply to men differently than they do to to women mm-hmm. uh, the scene that always stands out in my head is that one where they're telling thomason you know why weren't you watching the twins go watch go wash your father's rags mm-hmm. which, um you know and then and then he's saying you know no go watch the twins and then she said you know and they're they're pulling her in all these different directions and she can't do one thing because they haven't even made up their minds yet mm-hmm. um, which is, of course, you know, what leads into this beautiful, like, good for her kind of moment at the end with those group, that group of Budo dancers who yes. play the cover of Witches at the end, who I absolutely love. I guess they created their own choreography. Oh, that's so cool. so cool. I know. Have you ever seen a Buddha performance before? I no. haven't. No. Oh, it's really cool. Um, for those at home who might not be familiar, uh, Budo is a form of Japanese dance theater that often involves, like, a lot of, like, playful and grotesque imagery, taboo topics. Uh, extreme absurd environments it's considered one of like japan's most striking contributions to contemporary dance and it was founded by um there's two founding members but the big one was uh kazu ono who actually when was he died five years before this film he was 103 when he died um but he had originally been conscripted into the japanese army during world war ii and so all of the stuff that kind of came out you know with his with his dancing and what would become the Budo movement was the response to mm. what he saw in World War II, which is wild. But there are some very famous dances that are still recreated today. If you ever get a chance to, anyone out there, check out a Budo performance. It is spelled B-T or B-U-T-O-H. So Budo. Um, I'm probably also saying it wrong, which is too late. I've come too far. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in in all of them together, kind of again, this weird folkloric dance type that is still very modern. It came out in the fifties and sixties, mm. being applied to this final like scene that looks like a Goya painting. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, getting to see kind of what they're able to create here for that beautiful final image is so cool. Do you oftentimes have you know when when you've worked with directors, do they bring you tableaus or or paintings or things from time to time that they want you to recreate or with the shots or or how does that normally work? Uh, I ask for any and all inspiration, um, but I don't think I've ever received a painting. I've I've received uh, like a scene from a video game. I've received like a, a playlist, um, and then like movie recommendations or like episodes of TV. Um, but I don't think I've ever gotten a painting. No. I love all these other things that you've gotten. Though. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. so, so cool. Well, 
Alex, I also know that you recently had another folk horror film come out. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's called Lovely, Dark, and Deep. And um, it is, um, it's written and directed by Teresa Sutherland, who wrote The Wind. So, you know, we're keeping it in the family. Um, and <laughs> it is uh, another American folk horror, modern day, um, that... Um, takes place in our national parks, kind of the the last place of the frontier that we have pretended we conquered, perhaps. The Rocky Mountains were mm -hmm. my backyard, so yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, is this film available for people to see currently? Is it coming out in theaters? Uh, it is not yet available. I do believe... Um, early next year it should be, but I think there are some announcements that need to happen that I can't uh spill the beans Ooh. on yet. Um, Ooh. but uh, but yes, I very good secrets in these woods. Don't yes, worry about yes. Um, <laughs> the woods are lovely, dark and deep. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but so yes, I think uh, I've I've heard whispers of of some theaters perhaps that people can go to and see that aren't just in a festival and then i'm sure that there will be a digital release um but i have not received those details yet but entirely yeah. fair well be on the lookout in 2024 for more information about how you can see more of alex's wonderful work um and then in the meantime do you know if the wind is available on any vod currently i do believe it is I think that you, you know, I feel like you can buy or rent anything on Apple. Um, you check. <laughs> uh, but um, I, the last time I looked, it was on like a smaller screen, uh, like smaller, um, uh, I, I don't even know the name, you know, the, that they like to be or something like that. Oh, like a Pluto, like a freebie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think that it might be on there. Um, I don't know. They, again, they don't, they don't tell the editor where it goes after it goes. <laughs> I see like, Oh, it's on Hulu. Oh, it's on Netflix. Oh, it's, it's not on Netflix anymore. It's over here. So I don't, I, I'm not uh, privy to the contracts of, of, of the ways of that. But, um, that is entirely, entirely fair. I just want our audience to see your movie because... Oh, yes, please do. Yes. For those of you at home, please go and watch The Wind. Consider this your second film recommendation of this particular episode. Well, Alex, thank you so, so much. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, they can find me on Instagram. I'm at Alex underscore underscore Amick. Um, because okay. apparently there are a lot of Alex Amix in the world, which I did. I mean, okay. Hi. If yeah. you're listening, hi, you took Alex Amick <laughs> one underscore. <laughs> um. All right. Well, boo to that person. Obviously you're our favorite. <laughs> you're our favorite Alex Amick. Um, and again, thank you so much. Uh, all of you at home, go check out Alex. Follow her so that way you can see all of the wonderful things that she's got coming out in the future. And for those of y'all who just showed up just to hang out and talk some movies, that's great. We will see you next time. And stay folksy, y'all. Yay!